0: Be the first to walk you know, to help. Wish you a happy Valentine's Day, and and so you guys, you got no excuse now, because you've been warned. You got 24-hour notice. You you know, can't say I forgot. So there you go. No excuse for showing up empty-handed tomorrow. So let's see. But before we get into the scriptures here, I wanted to talk about sort of the uh, a brief look at the history of Valentine's Day. And since tomorrow, sweethearts of all ages will exchange cards, flowers, candy, and more lavish gifts, depending on your financial means, in the name of St. Valentine, right? So the church records his church history records at these three martyrs, all named Valentinus, who are associated with St. Valentine. The first one's a man who died in Africa with 24 soldiers in the 3rd century. And by the way, all these people died in the 3rd century. We don't know much else about this guy. Um, also, the second one is a priest from Rome, it was beheaded by Claudius Gothicus. I, I got to think that has something to do with goths, right? I mean, but anyway. So, and then the third one was the Bishop of uh, Terni in Umbria, Italy, Italy. And there's some confusion because he was beheaded as well. There's some confusion about well, these last two guys may have been one person. So They're actually the same guy. So what's interesting is that none of these guys, none of these Valentinis, is that they were over none of them were overly romantic. There are some undocumented legends about uh, Saint Valentine, who you know the namesake for the holidays, supposedly performing marriages for Roman soldiers who the same Emperor Claudius Gothicus had prohibited the soldiers from being married because he thought it hindered their performance in the battlefield because they would think about their wives instead of thinking about the emperor, you know anyway but other than that, there's no real evidence for that. So how did we go from beheaded priests and stuff, right, to the sentimental, romantic version of Valentine's Day? Well, Geoffrey Chaucer, the author of the Canterbury Tales, more than a thousand years after these guys were killed, linked the February feast of St. Valentine's to the mating of birds in the English countryside. He wrote in his Parliament of Fools, he says, this was on St. Valentine's Day when every bird cometh there to choose his mate. So it seems that in Chaucer's day, English birds paired off to produce eggs in February. So soon, nature-minded European nobility began sending love notes during the bird mating season. For example, the French Duke of Orleans, who spent years as a prisoner in a Tower of London, wrote to his wife in February 1415 that he was already sick of love, by which he meant he was lovesick, and he called her his very gentle valentine. English audiences embraced the idea of February being for love, and Shakespeare, uh, her, lo- her stuck Ophelia, spoke of herself as Hamlet's valentine. So in following centuries, English men and women began to, using February 14th as an excuse to pen verses to their love objects, industrialization made that easier with mass-produced cards, adorned with smarmy poetry, and then came along Cadbury and Hershey's and the other chocolate manufacturers, marketing sweets for one sweetheart on Valentine's Day. So today, shops everywhere in America and the U.S. and you know, uh, England, around the world, really, decorate their windows with hearts and banners proclaiming the annual day of love. Merchants stock their shelves with candy, jewelry, and you know, Cupid-related trinkets, begging, be my valentine, right? For most lovers, this request doesn't require beheading, as it did for the original Valentinus. So, But it seems the saint behind this holiday, just like love, he remains as elusive as love is. As St. Augustine, though, said in the great 5th century theologian and philosopher, he said in his treatise, Faith in Invisible Things, that someone doesn't have to be standing in front of us for us to love them. So as much like love itself, St. Valentine and his reputation as the patron of le- scene of love are not matters of verifiable history but of faith. What is verifiable history however is our scripture for today. 1 Corinthians 13. Now this was written by the Apostle Paul and what we call 1 Corinthians was not the first letter that Paul wrote them. He wrote an earlier letter that has not been preserved for us which the Corinthians misunderstood. And this is recorded in uh, chapter 5, verses 9 to 11, where he said, I wrote to you in a letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. I did not mean the immoral people of the world or the greedy and swindlers and idolaters. Otherwise, you would have to leave the world. But actually, I wrote to you not to associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister and is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater, or verbally abusive. A drunkard or a swindler do not even eat with such a person. So we know that Paul spent about a year and a half in Corinth, four years before he wrote this letter, so he was intimately familiar with the church and its issues. 1 Corinthians, the letter was, writ- was recognized early on as authoritative scripture. In fact, in AD 95, Clement, the bishop of Rome, wrote a letter to Corinth of his own in which he uh, invoked the authority of Paul's earlier letter. Only a few decades after its origin, this letter had traveled beyond Corinth and was considered authoritative beyond the initial Corinthian context. 1 Corinthians is important because it addresses a number of different issues relating to both life and doctrine, divisions and quarrels amongst believers, some even resulting in lawsuits, sexual immorality, marriage and singleness, freedom in Christ, order in church worship, the significance of the Lord's Supper, the proper use of spiritual gifts, and even a teaching on the resurrection. Chapters 12, 13, and 14 actually come together as a unit. They're devoted to instruction about spiritual gifts. Chapter 12 gives the context of the work of the Holy Spirit in a believer. Chapter 14 talks about the proper operation of the gifts. And in the middle is our chapter for today. Chapter 13, which gives the motivation for using the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Chapter 12 is the foundation for the spiritual gifts. Paul talks, or Paul describes how we are all interconnected as a body. And that to do God's work we need to let the Holy Spirit work through us collectively in whatever way or with whatever gifts He has given us. There are no lone rangers and there are no superstars. Each part of the body And each gift is just as important, even if it is not as flashy as the others. So Paul ends chapter 12 in the latter part of verse 31 with this, and I will show you an even better way. Now remembering that the the verse and chapter divisions were put in after the fact, this really should be the beginning of a new thought contained in chapter 13. So let's read chapter 13, shall we? If I speak human or angelic tongues but do not have love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and I have all faith so I can move mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give away all my possessions, if I give my body in order to boast but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient, love is kind. Love does not envy, is not boastful, is not arrogant, is not rude, is not self-seeking, is not irritable, and does not keep a record of wrongs. Love finds no joy in unrighteousness, but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will come to an end. As for tongues, they will cease as for knowledge, it will come to an end. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will come to an end. When I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put aside childish things. For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror, but then face to face. Now I know in part But then I will know fully as I am known. Now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. I lost my place. I think it's it's crazy. Anyway, that's it. 13 verses, right? Short chapter. But what a treasure trove of wisdom is found here. This chapter breaks down into three parts. The supremacy of love the description of love and the permanence of love. That is, it will outlast all the other gifts. So let's look at this first section, the, the supremacy of love, verses one to three, where he says If I speak human or angelic tongues but do not have love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, if I have faith so I can move mountains but do not have love, I'm nothing. If I give away all my possessions, I give over my body in order to boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Now Paul valued speaking in tongues highly. As we can see in chapter 14, verse 18, he wrote, I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. But here in chapter 13, he's disparaging speaking in tongues if it's not done in love. In fact, he compares speaking in tongues without love to a noisy gong, clanging cymbal. In other words, it's worthless. It fails to communicate anything of substance. It's just so much noise. Apparently the Corinthians desired to have spiritual gifts, especially the gift of speaking in tongues, but Paul says speaking is meaningless, without love. Now the reference to human tongues is readily understood to mean speaking in other languages, one that you don't know. Much has happened at Pentecost, as recorded in Acts, 2, 4 through 6, where it says, Then they were filled, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in different tongues as the Spirit gave enabled them. Now there were Jews staying in Jerusalem, devout people from every nation under heaven. When this sound occurred, a crowd came together and was confused, because each one heard them speaking in his own language. And next they were speaking human language, because it says each one heard them speaking in their own language, right? The reference to angelic tongues comes from the then prevalent Jewish belief that angels had their own language, and a human could speak it if they were enabled by the Holy Spirit. Paul neither confirms nor denies that there's an angelic language, but what he's saying here is it doesn't matter how eloquent you are. It doesn't matter how many languages you can speak. It doesn't matter if you can speak an angelic language. If you don't have love, it's all gibberish. Then Paul goes further moving into the other gifts in verse 2 where he says, if I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge and if I have faith so that I can move mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. Now Paul considered prophecy to be even more to be desired than speaking in tongues. Again in chapter 14 he says, I wish you all spoke in tongues but even more that you prophesied. The person who prophesies is greater than the person who speaks in tongues unless he interprets so that the church may be built up. So we know Paul thought highly of the gift of prophecy. Here he says the one who prophesies without love is nothing. And not only the one who prophesies, but the one who understands all mysteries and all knowledge. Now do you realize how much all mysteries and all knowledge is, right? Of course, Paul's using hyperbole here, right? Because certainly no person can understand all mysteries and all knowledge. The one who does would be God. But Paul says, even if you could understand all these things without love, you are nothing. Even the one who has all faith, and I don't know about you, but I struggle to have like a half a mustard seed of grain you know, faith, you know, Right? But even one who has all faith, they have enough enough faith they can move mountains, yet they don't have love. That person also is nothing. Then in verse 3 he gets a personal. If I gave away all my possessions, and if I give over my body in order to boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. He moves from the realm of supernatural gifts into the physical, right? Certainly there are people who give away much in the way of possessions and money, houses, cars, and such like that. I'm not sure we can point to anyone and say, well, they've given away all their possessions. Now, there's a guy named uh, Robert Gilmore Le Tourneau. He's better known as R.G. Tourneau. You can see this is old school, right? Leaving school at the age of 14, he became an iron worker in Portland, Oregon. He worked a number of jobs, including woodcutter, bricklayer, farmhand, miner, carpenter's assistant, acquiring a knowledge of the manual trades that proved valuable later in his life. He learned vehicle mechanics through a correspondence course, and eventually he founded R.G. Tourneau, Incorporated, an earth-moving equipment manufacturer. It's one of his pieces of equipment there behind him. So successful was he that his factories supplied nearly 70% of the earth-moving equipment and engineering vehicles used by the Allied forces in World War II. More than half of the 1,500 mile Alcan Highway that runs from Dawson Creek, British Columbia to Delta Junction, Alaska, was built with his equipment. Over the course of his life, he secured 300 patents related to earthmoving equipment, manufacturing processes, and machine tools. During the 30s, however, during the profession, he was deeply in debt. And he consulted with his pastor. He was a Christian. He thought he was being called to be a missionary. And his pastor wisely told him that God needs businessmen as well as preachers and missionaries. So the responded, all right, if that's what God wants me to be, I'll try to be his businessman. So he took his business partnership with God seriously, although he would later say that God got a sorry specimen as a partner. But when financial success came later, he believed this made him a debtor both to God and to all the people who had helped him. And so he and his wife determined that they would give God 90% of everything they had and they would live on 10%. But even giving like that, if you don't have love, it means nothing. Even giving your life in spectacular martyrdom, you know, the King James Version renders this as, I give my body to be burned. And we all know what that looks like, right? <laughs> old little ink and pen drawing. Thank goodness it's not in color, right? But anyway... Um, if you don't have love, it means nothing. And note here, it doesn't speak about somebody being dragged off to be burned at the stake. It says, if I give freely, I willingly go to a martyr's death without love. It's meaningless. Some early Christians thought the blood of martyrdom would wash away any sin. They were proud of their ability to endure suffering for Jesus. They thought it was the most important thing in the Christian life. Now, while suffering, trials, and tribulations will come, that's what Jesus told us, we will have tribulation, we should be ready to suffer for Christ. But that's not the most important thing about our Christian walk. Now normally no one would doubt the spiritual credentials of someone who gives away everything they own, or somebody who gives up their life in dramatic martyrdom. But those actions aren't the best measure of someone's true spiritual credentials. Love is the best measure. Love is the best of all the spiritual gifts, without which all the other gifts are worthless. Now Paul then moves on to describe this love of which he speaks. Before we get to that, I want to look at the word Paul's using for love, which probably everybody knows it's agape. You probably already know that. An agape love is love that loves without changing. It's a self-giving love. No demands, no repayment. It's so great that it can love the unlovable and the unappealing. It's love that loves even when it's rejected. It gives love because it wants to love. Not to receive anything. Alan Redpath, a British pastor, author, and evangelist, said we get our word agony, the English word agony, from the root word for agape. And he says it means the actual absorption of our being in one great passion. And strictly speaking, we can't say agape is God's love, because men in the Bible, in John 3 and 1 John 2, it says men, men agape sin and the world. But it can be defined as a sacrificial, giving, absorbing kind of love. This word has little to do with emotion, has much to do with self-denial for the sake of another. Now, we can read this chapter and think Paul's saying here that if we're unfriendly, then our lives mean nothing. But that's not what he's saying here. Agape is not really friendliness. It's self-denial for the sake of another. So let's go on to the description of love here. In in, uh, verses 4 through 7, he says, love is patient, love is kind. Love does not envy, is not boastful is not arrogant, is not rude, is not self-seeking, is not irritable, does not keep a record of wrongs. Love finds no joy in unrighteousness, but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. So here we find seven things that love is and eight things that love is not. But first, note that he describes love with action words not mushy, sentimental things. He's not writing about how love feels. He's writing about how you can see it in action. True love is always demonstrated by action. So first, what love is. Love is patient. This comes from two Greek words, long and tempered. Fine's expository dictionary says patience is self-restraint in the face of provocation, the opposite of anger. You have a short fuse? You get easily frustrated when things don't go your way or they don't happen fast enough for you? Do you retaliate easily and quickly against those that hurt you? That's the opposite of patience, okay? And I know because God is working on me to, de- to develop patience. It's a good thing Donna's not here. She would go, amen. So <laughs> 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 the ancient preacher John Chrysostom said, these Greek words describe the man who is wronged and who easily has the power to avenge himself, but he won't do it because of mercy and patience. This is the kind of love we see in the way God treats us in 2 Peter three nine. The Lord does not delay His promise as some understand delay, but is patient with you, not wanting any to perish but all to come to repentance. Now bringing it to us, it means Patience means we should wait out trouble. We don't strike out against adversity. We don't run from trials and tribulations. We don't run from God. We reflect God's love for us by being patient with others. Next, love is kind. When we have and show God's love, it will be seen in simple acts of kindness. A measure of kindness, a way to measure kindness, is to see how children react to you. Because children won't receive from or respond to unkind people. The Greek word for kind really means to show oneself useful. So taking patience one step further, not only are you long-tempered against trouble, but you actually reach out in your troubles to benefit someone else. Most of the time we think about what's in it for me. But kindness thinks What can I do to benefit you? That is love. Jumping to the second half of verse 6 and all of verse 7, he has love, rejoices in the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. So here we have the other five things that love is. You can tell I'm not used to talking. (laughs) <laughs> Not for this long, anyway. So it says, love rejoices in truth. Love can always stand with and on truth, because love is pure and good like truth. Rejoicing in the truth means you are drawn close, you draw close to someone as they come to know the truth of God, as they come to know the love of God, and as good things happen to them because they, as they give their lives to God. Love bears, believes, hopes, endures all things. Now the word translated bears here can also be translated as protects or covers. It means to roof over like a protective covering. This is the sense it's used in 1 Peter 4.8 where it says above all, maintain constant love for one another since love covers a multitude of sins. And that's actually a quote from Proverbs 10.12 which says hates Hatred stirs up conflicts, but love covers all offenses. Spurgeon says of this, Love covers, that is, it never proclaims the errors of good men. There are busy bodies abroad who never spy out a fault in a brother, but they must hurry off to their next neighbor with the savory news. And then they run up and down the street as though they had been elected common criers. It is by no means honorable to men or women to set up to be common informers. Yet I know some who are not half so eager to publish the gospel as to publish slander. Love stands in the presence of a fault with a finger on her lip. Now the word translated believes here means more than having a strong desire to do something, as in I I believe I'll have some ice cream or I believe I'll have another pastry, right? No, it means to put your faith in it. In this case, put your faith in the one you love. We never believe a lie, but we never believe believe evil unless the facts demand it. We choose to believe the best of others. Hopes doesn't mean wishful thinking like, I hope it's not windy tomorrow. It really means to have confidence. When someone you love hurts you, you don't say, It will be this way forever, and perhaps it will get even worse. No. True agape love hopes for the best with confidence because it hopes in God. Endures means to persevere. It means to keep going with a determination that nothing can stop us. When things look bad, when the ones we love act like they don't love us, love keeps on keeping on. Then Paul adds this little interesting thing at the end of each one of these. He adds all things. Now, all things does not mean some things. All things means everything. We can bear, believe, hope, and endure some things, but come on, all things? That's a little extreme, right? Well, maybe we're extraordinary. We can bear all things, believe all things, hope all things, endure all things for a little while, right? very short while. The greatness of agape love is that it keeps going. It doesn't give up. It keeps on bearing, believing, hoping, and enduring. It destroys enemies by making them into friends. Humorous Robert Jones Burdett wrote a piece which appeared in the National Magazine of Boston in 1915. He said, I will slay my enemies by making them my friends, which is far better from making them my brothers. Now, he meant the familial type brothers, but anybody who's been raised in a family knows that sometimes brothers and sisters really aren't friends, you know? So, but he says they're better, for brothers are not always friends, but true friends are better than brothers. So let's turn and look at what love is not. Back at the second half of verse 4 into the first part of verse 6, it says, love does not envy, is not boastful, is not arrogant, is not rude, is not self-seeking, is not irritable, does not keep a record of wrongs. Love finds no joy in unrighteousness. So love does not envy. Envy, jealousy, resentment, these are one of the least productive and most damaging of all sins. It accomplishes nothing except hurting ourselves and others. Love is never resentful. When someone else is promoted or blessed, love celebrates with them. Why does love not envy? Is it really that bad of a sin? Well, consider envy is what led Cain to murder Abel. Envy is what enslaved Joseph. Matthew 27, 18 says, envy put Jesus on the cross. We must avoid envy because it leads to all kinds of worse sins. Matthew Henry says, if we love our neighbor, we shall be so far from envying his welfare or being displeased with it that we shall share in it and rejoice in it, at it. His bliss and sanctification will be an addition to ours instead of impairing or lessening it. This is the proper effect of kindness and benevolence. Envy is the effect of ill will. The prosperity of those to whom we wish well can never grieve us. And the mind which is bent on doing good to all can never work ill to any. So when we love someone, we're happy to see them blessed. Love is not boastful. Love in action can work anonymously. It doesn't need to be in the spotlight. It doesn't need to draw attention to itself. Indeed, it doesn't even have to be satisfied with the result. Love does what it does because it loves, not to get approval or attention and not to show off. Some people seem to work hard at loving, yet are the furthest ones from it. They do things that you would think of as loving, but they do them in such a way as to say, hey, look at me. See what I'm doing? That's not love. That's pride, looking for glory by the appearance of love. Next it says, love is not arrogant. Arrogance is always self-focused. It's not other-focused. Arrogance speaks of someone who has the big head, right? Love doesn't focus on itself and get its head all swelled up. It focuses on the needs of others. Arrogance, like boastfulness, is rooted in pride. Pride is obnoxious, but the pride of grace is the worst. And it says love is not rude. Love will always reveal itself in kindness and good manners. Now we're not talking about the raise your pinky when you're drinking tea kind of manners, no. It's the, it's the put your others before yourself way of showing manners. And it says love is not self-seeking. This theme resonates with Paul, and he reiterates it in several of his letters. Romans 12.10 says, Be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love, in honor giving preference to one another. Philippians 2.4 Everyone should look not to his own interests, but rather to the interests of others. If you want to be like Jesus... And as Christians, that's our goal, right? Then here's the most basic way of being like Jesus. Being an others-centered person instead of a self-centered person. Remember the J-O-Y acronym. It's Jesus, others, and then yourself. So if you want to have joy in your life, remember joy. (laughs) Jesus, others, yourself. Adam Clark... A Methodist theologian said, love is never satisfied, but in the welfare, comfort, and salvation of all. That man is no Christian who is solicitous for his own happiness alone and cares not how the world goes so that himself be comfortable. Next we have love is not irritable or easily provoked. The New King James Version renders this as love is not provoked. Now certainly in this world, there are many irritations. I just had to go get my license renewed. Yeah, that's an irritation. <laughs> Especially standing in line, wait, wait. Okay, anyway, many provocations, right? But this, this is more than being irritated. Matthew Henry says again, he says, Love is not exasperated. It corrects a sharpness of temper, sweetens and softens the mind so that it does not suddenly conceive nor long continue a vehement passion. Where the fire of love is kept in, the flames of wrath will not easily kindle, nor long keep burning. Charity will never be angry without a cause, and will endeavor to confine the passions within proper limits, that they may not exceed the measure that is just, either in degree or duration. Anger cannot rest in the bosom where love reigns. It is hard to be angry with those we love, but very easy to drop our resentments And be reconciled. We need to remember Moses, who was kept from going into the Promised Land because he became provoked, exasperated with the Hebrew people. Next, we have love does not keep a record of wrongs. This idea is in reference to what Paul wrote in First Corinthians chapter six about how the Corinthians were bringing lawsuits against one another, and instead of settling matters amongst themselves in a spirit of humility and love. In 1 Corinthians 6-7, Paul admonishes them, the very fact that you have lawsuits among you means you have been completely defeated already. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Instead of an attitude of demanding our rights, Paul says keep no record of wrongs. In fact, going so far as to say it's better to be cheated than to be unloving. Far too often people say they love each other. But as soon as one of them gets angry, they bring up a laundry list of past wrongs. Accusations fly, dredging up painful memories. Bygones are no longer bygones. This is not love. True love, godly love, forgives and refuses to keep track of the wrongs done to us. The focus of love is not on your pain but on the needs of the one you love. Now don't get this wrong. This is not saying you should allow people to continue to hurt or abuse you. What it's saying is when someone hurts you and comes to you seeking forgiveness and you forgive them, then you are to have the spirit of reconciliation and the past stays in the past. So love finds no joy in unrighteousness. Love does not stand with sin and unrighteousness. Love stands with truth because love is pure and good like truth. Anything that covers up sin or seeks to justify wrongdoing is the complete opposite of godly love. Love does not sweep sin under the rug. It does not try to find ways to get away with bad behavior. It does not put up with injustice. Instead, it treasures truth, celebrates good behavior, and promotes virtue. True love has nothing to hide. Now we get into the permanence of love. And this is the most important part of this chapter. Picking up where we left off in verse 8. Love never ends, but as for prophecies, they will come to an end. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will come to an end. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will come to an end. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I fought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put aside childish things. For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully as I am fully known. Now these three remain, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. Love will outlive all the other gifts. Prophecies, they have a definite end. When they come to fruition, they're fulfilled. They're no longer needed. Tongues, they will cease. Knowledge, it'll vanish away. Paul's telling the Corinthian Christians, and he's telling us, that we should not overemphasize spiritual gifts. Are they important? Certainly. But it is more important to love than to spiritual gifts. Because spiritual gifts are temporary. The lasting work of God is love. And that's where our emphasis should be. Then Paul adds that even our working in the spiritual gifts is only in part. They're not complete, only partial. The gifts of the Holy Spirit are good for the present time, but they're not permanent. They are imperfect gifts for an imperfect time. Paulian points out the time when the gifts will cease, when the perfect comes. Now, some people believe that this, the cessation of spiritual gifts, was after the time of the apostles when the New Testament was completed. But the vast majority of Bible commentators and theologians agree that the phrase, when the perfect comes, means when we are in the eternal presence of the perfect one. That is, when we are with the Lord forever. Either because Christ has returned, or we have been promoted into the eternal. Paul then gives two illustrations of the temporary nature of these. In verse 11, he has when I was a child, I spoke like a child, thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put aside childish things. Just as childish things are appropriate for children, the spiritual gifts are appropriate for our present time. But they will not be appropriate forever. As the song Puff the Magic Dragon says, oh, I'm I'm dating myself, huh? Okay, you don't know, Puff the Magic Dragon was a song written by Peter Yarrow of Peter, Paul, and Mary. They were an American folk music group back in the 60s. Had a resurgence in the 80s. Anyway, this song's about an imaginary dragon, the titular Puff, and the boy who dreamed him up, Little Jackie Paper. Anyway, the pertinent lyrics for us today are, A dragon lives forever, but not so, girls and boys. Painted wings and giant's rings make way for other toys. Children grow up, they mature, and hopefully become productive members of society. So also will we mature. When we join the Lord in heaven, we shall be mature. We will put the things of our childhood behind us. Now Paul's not saying that if we're spiritually mature, we don't need the spiritual gifts. But he does say that if we are spiritually mature, we will not emphasize the spiritual gifts at the expense of love. He gives us a second illustration in the first part of verse 12. For now we see a reflection as in a mirror, but then face to face. When we can see Jesus fully, face to face, and not as a poor, distorted reflection, our need of spiritual gifts will vanish. And so the gifts will cease. Just as we have outside lights that turn off when the sun rises, the gifts of the Holy Spirit will be completely overshadowed by the presence of Jesus. Now face to face describes complete, unhindered fellowship with God. 1 John 3.2 tells us there'll be no more barriers to our relationship with God. It says, but we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him for we shall see him as he is. And the mention of the mirror may be confusing to us today because we have really nice mirrors that have silver on back of them and all that. You know, back in the ancient world, the mirrors were polished metal and they were very, very poor mirrors. The image was always unclear and distorted. But even here with our perfect mirrors and eyeglasses to fix us, right? That we still see Jesus unclear, distorted. But one day we'll see him with perfect clarity. It's like this. I can I can't see without these I can't see like six feet in front of me, right? But with him I can see, you know, hundreds of yards. So when we get to heaven, we see Jesus clearly. I don't know about you, but I thank God that I can't see myself as clearly as God sees me right now. <laughs> I don't think I can handle it, right? Spurgeon says on this If we knew more of our own sinfulness, we might be driven to despair. If we knew more of God's glory, we might die of terror. If we had more understanding, unless we had the equivalent capacity to employ it, we might be filled with conceit and tormented with ambition. But up there in heaven, we shall have our minds and our systems strengthened to receive more without the damage that would come to us here from overleaping the boundaries of order, supremely appointed and divinely regulated. The second part of verse 12, he says, Now I know in part, but then I will know fully, as I am fully known. This may come as a shock to some of you, maybe not, but did you know God knows everything about you? Right? The good, bad, and the ugly. Scary thought, right? Meanwhile, here today, we only know as much about God as is revealed to us in Scripture. But in heaven, we will know God as perfectly as it is possible for a creature to understand its creator, in our case, the eternal spiritual God. It doesn't mean we'll be all-knowing as God is, but it means we'll know Him as perfectly as we can. Now, most Christians know what heaven's supposed to look like. It's described in Revelation. Indeed, it's precious to us. But, and we long to be reunited with loved ones who have gone before us and to meet the great men and women of God from centuries past. We want to walk the streets of gold and see the pearly gates, see the angels around the throne of God. But none of these things, as precious and awe-inspiring as they are, none of them make heaven heaven. What really makes heaven heaven is the unhindered, what am I at here? Lost my place. Yeah, there it is. Unhindered, unrestricted presence of our Lord, and to know Him just as we are also known—that will be the greatest experience of our eternal existence. Spurgeon says, "The streets of gold will have a small attraction to us; the harps of angels will but slightly enchant us, compared with the King in the midst of His throne. He it is who shall rivet our gaze." absorb our thoughts, enchain our attention, and move all our sacred passions to their highest pitch of celestial ardor. We shall see Jesus. Verse 13 provides a summary of the permanence of love. Now these three remain, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. The three great pursuits of a Christian life should not be miracles, power, and gifts, They should be faith, hope, and love. Spiritual gifts bestowed by the Holy Spirit are precious and useful, but they were never meant to be the goal of our Christian lives. We are to pursue faith, hope, and love. We need to ask ourselves, what is your Christian life focused on? What do you really want more of? If the answer is not faith, hope, and love, then we need to make God's priorities our priorities and put our focus back where it belongs. Faith, hope, and love are so important that they're emphasized throughout the New Testament. Faith appears 450 times, hope 160 times, gift 100 times, but the word love appears over 500 times. So you can see where the emphasis is. So Paul announces love is the greatest of the great. And there are several reasons for this. When we're in heaven, faith and hope will have fulfilled their purpose, but love will continue, even grow throughout all eternity. This is because when we're face-to-face with God, we won't need faith. We won't need the hope in the coming of Christ when He's already come back and we're with Him. Faith and hope are not part of God's character, but love is. This is I, I was Taken aback by this. I had to research this. But, you know, God doesn't have faith like we do because God never needs to trust in anything outside Himself. And He doesn't have hope as we do because we hope for things because we don't know what's going to happen. But God knows all things, He's in complete control, He knows the end from the beginning. The most, you know, the best way why love is greatest of all, the re- best reason. Is because God is love, and he always will be. Paul's not telling us to choose here. We can only have one of these, faith, hope, or love. Paul's emphasizing the point that spiritual gifts are meaningless distractions without love as the motive and goal. Faith and hope themselves are meaningless without love. If we lose love, we lose everything. One of the best ways to understand this is to take this chapter Every time you see love, replace it with Jesus. It would be perfectly meaningful because Jesus did all this. Jesus is patient. Jesus is kind. Jesus does not envy. He's not boastful, not arrogant, not rude, not self-seeking, not irritable, doesn't keep a record of wrongs, finds no joy in unrighteousness. Jesus rejoices in the truth. He bears, believes, hopes, and endures all things. Now, I'll take it a step further, we have these little handouts out there. I don't know if you picked one up or not. It's got blanks on it. You can pick one of these up and put your name on that blank. And see. How, then read it. It's the same statements we have here, but with your name instead of Jesus there. So put it in there and read it. Does it sound real? Does it sound a little far-fetched? Does it sound totally ridiculous? But this will tell you how you're measuring up in love. We're not going to grade it. It's, it's for you to do your own self-assessment for you. To find out your love quotient. Now, maybe you're hearing this and you're thinking, love, love, blah, 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 blah. Because you don't know what love is, what real love, true love is. Maybe you love somebody and they left you. Maybe even one of your parents said they loved you and then they walked away from you or treated you horribly. That's just human love. If you want to know the real agape love, you will only find that in the everlasting arms of Jesus. Jesus loved you so much that he died before you were born. He went went to the cross and died for you. God loved you so much that he sent his son to die for you on the cross, the perfect atonement for your sin. If you've never claimed that free gift of forgiveness for your sins, perhaps what we learned here today will put it all in perspective for you. If God is calling you, come forward as we close for prayer or see one of us afterwards. We'd be glad to show you how you can become a child of God. And experience His unending love today. Perhaps you're a child of God already, but you see how you lack that God. Maybe you fill out this checklist and you said, uh, nah, I'm ready. I'm I'm missing three or four of these, you know, maybe eight of them. I don't know. <laughs> maybe a bunch of them. <laughs> maybe all of them." <laughs> but maybe you realize, "Hey, I need I need work on this." Well, feel free to come forward for prayer as we close, and we'd be glad to pray for you. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for this day. We thank you for just a wonderful time being being in your word, Lord. I thank you, Lord, that, that you love us enough to send your son to die for us. Lord, I thank you that you pour forth your love on us, that we can share it with everyone else. Lord, help us to have that kind of love in us, the same kind of love that you had for us, that we would just reach out to people, the hurting the the people that are not not lovely not lovely and not lovable. Lord, because we were that way at one time. We were unlovely, we were unlovable. We were despicable people. But Lord, you picked us up. So Lord help us to reach out to people. Help us to spread your grace, your mercy, your love throughout this world in everything we do. Lord, I thank you for it in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.